Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. I'm not a famous fortune teller, but I can clearly foresee the picture which will appear on the front pages of many of the world's newspapers on May the 27th, 2024. It will show Italy's Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney with Mount Etna, a not quite extinct volcano, in the background. The photo will be meticulously posed upon the stage of the Teatro Greco in Taormina, Sicily. Miss Maloney will not be alone. Standing alongside her will be the President of the United States, as well as other heads of state and government from the G7 countries, a group of industrialised economies, as well as representatives of the European Union. This year marks the sixth time that Italy has held the presidency. A previous summit in Venice back in 1980 was attended by the French leader Valéry Giscard d'Estaing and the US president Jimmy Carter. So what's in store for the G7 under Italy's leadership this time? And what are the implications for China? I'm very pleased to be joined by Bill Emmett, He's a writer, journalist, and chair of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. But it's good to speak with you again. Good to be on the podcast again. Well, because this is a podcast about China, let's start with a significant announcement which came from the office of Prime Minister Maloney towards the end of last year. She said that Italy is formally withdrawing from Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. What led to that decision? I think, Duncan, what led to that decision is that Italy had joined the Belt and Road Initiative on its own from a European point of view. It was the one country that had signed up to China's infrastructure development uh, scheme, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, under a previous government led by um, the rather left-wing populist Five Star Movement, which had in its midst a China enthusiast, Professor Michele Garacci from the University of Nottingham. He was a minister keen on China and persuaded his prime ministers to sign up to the BRI. Now, uh, a number of years later, I think that what Miss Maloney has done is weigh up the costs of being isolated in Europe, and particularly from an increasingly tough European attitude to China, against the benefits of being in the BRI. And the BRI's benefits have not stacked up. It's not that it's been a disaster or, or, or anything terrible, but rather that it's such a small benefit to Italy that the cost of being on your own in Europe has not been what Miss Maloney has wanted to have. Oh, that's a very interesting piece of political analysis, Bill. Thanks. Actually, I find the case of Italy and the BRI intriguing. When it was going well, there were about 150 countries which signed memorandums of understanding with China, saying that they would participate. Uh, now we've reached the point where China pretty much seems to have given up trying to persuade European countries to be part of the BRI. Instead, the focus now seems to be on maintaining links between China and countries in what's often termed the global south. So. It seems to me as though we live in a divided world. I think that's right, Duncan. But also um, the other thing that's changed that is perhaps the background to that divide has been the war in Ukraine, which has led countries to think more deeply about dependency on, if you like, potentially hostile other countries. Uh, and while the BRA looked like a great thing in terms of getting 
investment into infrastructure. Um, China builds you an airport. China can't take that airport away again. But as countries became uh, a little concerned about dependency on Russia uh, in the war in Ukraine, they have now started looking at dependency uh, on China and the so-called process of de-risking is underway. And that has, I think, led many to get a little turned off by the prospect. On the other side, we have to recognize that China's great boom period of capital exports is ebbing. Uh, the flood of money that China had uh, a decade or so ago when BRI was uh, in its heyday um, is now declining as China's current account surplus has also declined. So I think from a Chinese point of view, there's less to give. Um, and from the rest of the world point of view, there's less to receive unless you're a very poor country. Those are good points. Let's talk about that summit in Sicily, which is due to take place in the summer. Now, that venue spectacular, uh, and the event will include a visit by world leaders to a theatre which first opened to the public in the 3rd century BC. So given such a stage and worldwide attention, what does Italy intend to provide for the show? It's a magnificent theatre, by the way. Um, I certainly would be happy if I was a G7 leader to be going there. But I think we have to think about what's the G7 really for. Yes, it puts on a show, but a show that over decades has become less and less meaningful as a show. When I was editor of The Economist, I stopped sending uh, journalists to cover the G7 because for a weekly analytical magazine, there was too little to analyze. The show is no longer what's important about the G7. It's the process. And what the G7 consists of is actually a vast number of meetings at all ministerial and official levels that take place during the presidency of uh, that government. So the show will, its content will depend on what's going on at the time, particularly, I think, with regard to the war in Ukraine uh, and with regard to the war in Israel, perhaps with regard to the aftermath of the Taiwanese elections uh, and what China's attitude to Taiwan is. But mainly, it's going to be the centerpiece of a long process of coordination between the liberal democracies of the world. Who might Italy invite to its summit in Sicily in May? From an Italian point of view, they may well wish to emphasise relationships with Africa um, and particularly North Africa, uh, Algeria, countries that they've, uh, they've now done uh, quite substantial energy deals with, for example. I think they will focus on the global south. They will be wanting probably to discuss migration, uh, since that's a big European topic, but especially a big Italian topic as the first country, particularly in and around the islands of Sicily, where migrants crossing the Mediterranean uh, tend to end up. So they will want to invite countries that are starting points for, the, for that, that migrate, migrant flow. But in addition, I think they will be have their eye on Ukraine I wouldn't be surprised if Vladimir Zelensky didn't show up at that summit, for example. And they may have somebody else um, from Asia, probably India. Well, this might be quite a good point to review the performance of Japan's term as G7 president in uh, 2023. I watched that closely. And to be honest with you, Bill, I was impressed by the energy and the sense of purpose which Prime Minister Fumio Kishida brought to the role. But... It didn't do him a huge amount of favours in terms of domestic politics. 
In fact, I think it is possible that Mr Kashida could lose his job by the time that the next G7 summit takes place in Italy in May. I'd like to hear your assessment of the Japanese presidency of the G7 in 2023. I think the Japanese presidency in 2023 was widely admired uh, internationally. Um, it was seen to be, as you say, energetic, but also uh, quite effective and purposeful. The big headline that Prime Minister Kish Kishida tried to achieve in his initial planning about uh, denuclearization, about abandoning nuclear weapons, got nowhere. And that perhaps is one reason why it had no resonance domestically. He's from Hiroshima. The G7 was in Hiroshima. He wanted to, if you like, build on his personal reputation as, as a nuclear pacifist. But uh, the rest of the G7 wanted, wasn't interested. Uh, and anyway, it's not realistic at present. So what domestic message he had didn't resonate. But also his, his fate is that of many um, prime ministers and world leaders, which is that they become more admired abroad than they do at home. Well, let me ask you another speculative question. In the past few months, the Japanese foreign minister, Yoko Kamikawa, has played a high-profile role in global politics. What are her chances of becoming Japan's next leader? I would say that um, Mrs Kamikawa's chances are real because there is no clear successor in line for, um, uh, for to take over from Prime Minister Kishida if the handover happens this year. Uh, and when there is no clear successor, no, if you like, heavyweight candidate backed by a powerful faction, that opens up the chance for, if you like, somebody who, from a domestic point of view, is a relative unknown. And that is the reality about Mrs. Kamikawa. She's a relative unknown domestically. But that might mean, might mean that she's a safe choice from the point of view of, of uh, rival factions inside the LDP. And as the, what would be Japan's first female prime minister, that might also appeal to the LDP um, as a way to as it were, look new and, uh, and uh, adventurous from a domestic point of view. But let's not uh, rate her chances excessively. There's going to be a number of other candidates who are going to be her rivals. Well, let's go back to the G7. When I talk about that group with people from China, they're usually very negative about it because they see the G7 as a means for America to use its considerable influence to press other countries to fall in line with its foreign policy. For example, backing Ukraine against Russia, supporting Israel, cutting off China's supplies of advanced technology. How do you see the function of the G7 in the modern world? Well, I think the reality of the modern world is that there is no dominant governance mechanism in the world we have today. Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group has long ago called it the G0 world. There's no operating system. The G20, the wider group that includes China and India, has not taken off as being an effective decision-making body. The G7 is no longer dominant because its countries no longer dominate the world in the way that they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So what is the G7? It is an effective coordinated mechanism among the advanced liberal democracies. Uh, and so when the advanced liberal democracies share an agenda, be it dealing with a banking crisis or coordinating sanctions over Ukraine, then yes, it is pretty effective mechanism for coordinating on that agenda, very often, but not always led by the United States. 
the reality is that there is no leadership group for the world. And so I don't think what the G7 does acts to damage the rest of the world at all. The rest of the world is trying to set up alternative coordination mechanisms, such as the BRICS summit, such as the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, such as the G20. But for the moment, they're talking shops rather than action shops. And the difference with the G7 is that sometimes it is an action shop. Well, I'll share one of my impressions about the G7, if I may, Bill. I think it's significant that the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, plays a key role at its meetings these days. And last year, she said, the Chinese Communist Party's clear goal is a systemic change of the international order with China at its centre. And she said that the Belt and Road Initiative has been set up by China to rival the current international system. Do you agree with her analysis? Well, I agree that Russia and China together have set out to try to undermine Western leadership of the international order. That's what Vladimir Putin and President Xi Jinping very clearly laid out in their joint statement published three weeks before the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February the 4th, 2022. Uh, it includes very much the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it includes the previous Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a sort of a rival for the Asian Development Bank and the, and the World Bank. It definitely includes trying to seize domination of the various United Nations uh, agencies. So yes, China does absolutely have that goal in league with Russia. Um, and it's absolutely appropriate for Western countries to try to respond to that. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your thoughtful analysis of these important issues. And I hope that you'll join us again soon to talk more about Europe, China and East Asia. That's the writer and journalist Bill Emmett. He's the chair of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.